Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's DevOps Lunch and Learn session is from March 23rd, and we had a one-on-one podcast guest, Julian Bennett, uh, an author of DevSecOps, come back and do an open mic with the, with the lunch group. And we really had some great conversations. We talked about zero trust, TLS, certificates, CICD, firmware vulnerabilities, um, best practices in general. So if you had questions, he answered them and we had a really remarkable discussion. All the way through, enjoy. What's up with all of these uh, like cloud native or quote unquote cloud native uh, projects, particularly operators? requiring you to install their binary by curling a page and having it through bash. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, it's, it's always a question of, uh, you know, convenience trumps security, right? Um, always, the more, if your security solution is inconvenient to use, nobody would use it, right? It's, it's not just curl by bash, it's, it's pretty much everything else. As well, uh, again, how many people actually verify PGP signatures when they download a release that is signed with a PGP key? Like 0.1%. <laughs> um, unless it's done automatically by the tool, nobody else cares because it's so complicated to actually go grab that signature file, grab the right key, verify it's the correct one, etc. It's you know. So if you want things to be secure, then you need to give a tool that does everything in one command, basically. That's, I, I know we struggled with, with that because we did, and actually it's funny because we were just talking about the people who want to Docker install our product, which causes its own myriad concerns um, from that perspective. But yeah, we ended up with our, uh, I mean, here's my dilemma on that. You could just download and run the read the install.sh script if you wanted. It's just a lazy, you know, it's a laziness to not, but a useful but, laziness. Yeah, I know what I do. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, ours, ours has gotten to be like 500 lines of bash now. So, sorry, go ahead. I don't find that curb pipe bash in and of itself is necessarily bad. Right, it's it entirely depends on um, where the script is coming from, and how much you know how reputable the origin of the script is, really. And like if you're if you're doing a curl pipe bash for a random uh, you know random project to host it on a random site that you don't know anything about. And when it prompts you for your pseudo password, you just type it in and okay, <laughs> it's, it's your choice. <laughs> you leave with the consequences. Um, yeah. But like if you're, if you're doing a curl pipe bash of like github.com slash react, are, are you really taking a whole lot of risk, for example? Like, or, or like github.com slash terraform? I'm taking random examples. I don't know if they actually do that, but like, it's a pretty reputable origin, right? And the script is probably secure. It's not worse than doing an NPM install, 
where you you end up putting down <laughs> dependencies of dependencies of dependencies, and they all have their pre-installed and post-installed scripts. For example, it, it's just the same level of trust, in my opinion. Yeah, doesn't that make it kind of a generic home? Right, if I'm on Windows or I'm on Mac, I've got verified installers. I, I know I have a trusted source. So going beyond the curl side, isn't that just kind of a whole missing Linux feature? Well, not everything is is going to be provided by your default tool. Right? I'm sorry, is that is that what you meant? Like hmm. things are not necessarily in the package manager. Well, I'm just saying there's there's some there's some level of trust when I'm going on to Windows or I'm going on to a Mac, right? And I'm downloading something. It's a verified source, right? We don't really have that concept in Linux. Is it though? I mean, if you look at Windows, uh, Windows applications and installer signing, it's it's a little bit security theater, right? Because you, you can you can go to pretty much any certificate authorities and get a, a Windows signing cert, a code signing cert, right? With some, you know, give them a couple hundred bucks and some reasonably legitimate business name, and you can sign whatever you want with it. Um, and even even if it's not signed, in fact. Uh, I remember back when um, we we're studying the security of the installer of Firefox, like the number of people who would just download a non-official distribution of Firefox that wasn't signed and would just click through the ignore button when prompted was like, do you want to install this unsigned package? It was just staggering. <laughs> just People would just click it like, sure, I've been trained to do that for the past 20 years. <laughs> So how do we correct that? Better tooling, absolutely better tooling. Like, yeah, I I find that some of the solutions that um, you know, some of the package managers um, that will require not only signing but also packages, immutable packages that cannot be changed. Uh, so Go Go did something super interesting. They adopted the certificate transparency fancy Merkle tree model that's also used in Bitcoin, basically a blockchain, right? To, uh, to not only sign packages, but also make sure that the version of a package has been registered cannot be changed after the fact, right? It's immutable. And, and you never see uh, those verification checks. You do go get my package, right? And it will install whatever you're downloading. It will verify the signature. It will verify the existence uh, of that hash in the tree, and you never see any of it, and, and that's that's beautiful to me because it's it's perfect security without any user involvement. It will scream at you if it breaks, but ninety nine point nine percent of the time you never see. It. Okay, so talking about breakage, I am, in this perspective, just a user. I am upgrading my router, which has been failing. And don't get me started on the fact that the router connects HTTP, not HTTPS. <laughs> and you're changing all your passwords via that mode. <laughs> but uh, so you're doing all of this stuff. I have HTTPS everywhere turned on to my, on uh, my browser because I'm a good little user and I, I'm a member of EFF. So I can't get to the router and I get a connection failed with no help on Firefox because 
there's no HTTPS and I have HTTPS everywhere turned on. And I'm struggling because I don't remember, you know, I turn off all my scripting and stuff on that page and I forget about HTTPS. Frustrate the hell out of me. How do you get people, even operators, to sit there with, with better tooling and not just thwart the system when something like that happens? <laughs> it's human nature. How do you thwart human nature? <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the web was a mistake, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's the way we just try to, you know, put security in after the fact. No, right? All complex systems are mistakes, right? Like, like nature is a mistake. Like that's the whole point of complex systems that they just emerge from, you know, from accidental relationships between a number of things and, and then evolving relationships, I think. Um, I think it is interesting to see, though, that um, it is interesting to, to the signing package signing thing we were just talking about a little bit before, right? I think it's interesting to see, though, that that we are beginning to figure out what the immune system looks like a little bit, right? And identity is a huge part of it. Yes. Uh, right. And so, but, um, but yeah, but, uh, you know, I don't, it's really funny because I, I don't think you can eliminate finding new edge cases, I guess is the way I would put it, right? Like we could, we can plan, we can plan for the things we know about and we can provide some guardrails and protections against the things we don't know about, but we can't thwart behaviors that we aren't expecting. That, that, that's just my opinion. But. So the, the tooling though, I think, and this is where getting people to stick with the tooling, we need to at least predict that there will be unknown cases and at least stick up a message that says, we've got no clue. Uh, so this is where you start to figure out if it's this or this or this, because otherwise that's what frustrates people. Having, it, having them just told no, right. with no information. When and I think that's, that, it, that is unacceptable in modern user experiences to simply say, you can't do this and then kind of leave people hanging, right? Um, there ought to be at least, you know, a, a link to a troubleshooting guide or something. I, I do agree with that. I mean, I think you, you should at least know if you as the product maker were going to run into this situation, where would you go next? And is that something that your customers... Um, have the opportunity to do and can you document that for them but um, I, yeah I don't necessarily think it's uh, it's impossible to say no to users um, I think it is unreasonable to say no to users for things they have zero control over right I mean so for example a browser for preventing you from accessing your router configuration page because it doesn't have HTTPS I'm the user what like I, I have no control over the router I have no yeah. control over the browser why am I being prevented from using my equipment right that's so, a good distinction that's a good distinction I can accept that for sure but, a good but but that can also be controllable like we had somebody come through and say hey we we want the ability to to choose which ciphers are allowed on your you know https certificate um or, or right so so you can crack, you know, that should be config, I guess, 
to me, this is the question. There's an out-of-the-box behavior because you need ease of use. And then there's a secure behavior where you can say, you know what, I really don't, I want to not allow this, this open security or crank things up. You sort of need both because the, if it's too, if it's too frustrating for new users to use while they're learning the basics of the system, they, they'll, they do, they just stop using the product. Yeah, but I mean, those are, those are configurable today, right? Who, who's going to go in here? Who on this call even? is going to go in and try and decide which of the 200 plus CAs that are in the browser are actually going to be allowed. <laughs> you, your browser. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I'm saying. No, no, I can go do that. I can go add to my list of CAs that are in there to like do an upgrade, right? But how, how are you to know which one of those are, are reputable and which one of those are not? Which one of those are you really going to trust? It's beyond the scope of, it's not the question of can you configure it? You can. I can get past my, my HTTPS site and get to the router. I can get to my list of CAs and configure it. I can configure my list of sites for most of these browsers. Who technically has the expertise or the domain, expert, the domain knowledge to know what they should do? I mean, if you're, if you're asking who should be guiding you in... Uh, you know, using your internet, right? It's going to be your browser manufacturer effectively, right? That's, that's the user agent that's uh, allowing you to browse the web safely, right? I mean, Chrome, Firefox, like Safari, Brave, they all have gigantic security teams uh, and not just like, you know, backend security team, but actual researchers who constantly study how people, you know, non-technical people use the web to make their experience more secure. And so when, when you're relying on a user agent, you're effectively like asking that user agent to do the secure thing for you. Now, from time to time, it's gonna do something that you wanna be able to do and the user agent tells you, no, no, <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> this right, is so there's two points I was trying to make. Rob is kind of going, that should be something a user can control. And my point is, but they, they totally lack that domain expertise to be able to go do that. Right, I can change these things in Chrome, right? And to your second point is, you know, I've been on the other side of this. Um, I, I had opportunities to go buy CAs for as little as $100,000, right? And, and so trusting Google to be the source that's securing all those CAs, I don't, I, I know how cheap CAs can be bought. <laughs> This is well, we, true. This is true. I have my gripes with a with a web PKI as a whole. Uh, even you could buy a CA that's trusted. But that's that's a pretty. Uh, it's a pretty transparent process, right? Uh, if you buy a CA, CA changes ownership. There are rules that require disclosing this, and the browser manufacturers can decide to kick the CA out. Whatever, right? You're gonna get reaudited, etc. But even more sneaky than this is the fact that CAs will trust each other they will cross sign each other's roots so that even if one of them ends up getting kicked out of the trust store then it may still be usable in the browser because it inherits the trust from another root and that's we saw that happen uh with if you remember the wall sign uh start ssl.com circa oh, yeah. 2015 that uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. That got kicked out of the browsers right and they got a cross signature from another ca to try to stay in the system, even though the browser manufacturers clearly said, no, <laughs> it's time to go. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have that problem with 
this is a completely non-transparent process to the users. Users don't know anything. And there's really no easy way to explain to them um, that they're trusting a site, they're trusting a CA, but in fact, that trust relationship is a lot more complex than it appears, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was the one. Uh, issue. That there was the wildcard certs where there, there was the, the multiple domains on one cert, which the Aaron changed the rules around that. I went back and like you, you mentioned the, the code signing certs. I went back, they, they don't do domain validation, but they still do standard validation or extended validation. It'd be a lot easier if they just did extended validation. It'd be a lot tougher to hack that signature, but they still allow standard validation to it. So I'm just saying, yeah, you know, the, the entire certificate system, particularly after Let's Encrypt, where, where they just made domain validation so freaking easy, it, it's a bit of a joke right now. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Let's Encrypt. I mean, we're, we're, it feels to me like we're using TLS for. Um, Key exchange, not trust, not trust. That's our immune system. Is like this is going to get philosophical, right? Because trust is such a complex hmm. notion. Okay. Like, do, do I do I really trust like 4chan, even though the connection is HTTPS? Like, probably not. So I I, I trust that the connection is secure, but not necessarily the site itself. So the, the oh, my. like HTTPS will allow your customer to trust your site and even in CAs, I think that's still like guarantee up to like a hundred thousand uh, dollars your transactions. <laughs> it's just like, this is all security theory. What? Yeah, that is theory. Well, there's, there's two different kinds of trust there. There's the, do you trust it's really 4chan and do you trust that site? Right, exactly. So, but from a user perspective, from, from a technologist, I understand that distinction, but from a user who doesn't have a technical background, do I really understand the distinction? Like the messaging we've had on HTTPS for the past 20 years has been very murky. And, and for a long yeah, time, CAs were saying, you're HTTPS, you can trust everything on that site. Yeah, most, uh, most users don't have a uh, level of understanding for that sort of distinction. It's just literally the the uh, browser says it's trusted because it takes you there, or you get these warnings that say this isn't there or that's not there. Go anyway. <laughs> and most people don't think twice to say go anyway. And sometimes they even just say disable it for this site. Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to like, your users will always pick convenience over security, no, no matter how difficult the, the hopes are, like they will pick convenience over security. Always. <clears throat> and so it's like this, right? So um, we all want absolute security, but thank God Parla had a back door, right? Yes. What was thank that about? You. Oh, you mean, you mean that somebody was able to go scrape it? Yes. And so there is an inherent duality in this. That is that <clears throat> although we insist and as security practitioners, we try and make sure that things are secure, that there will never be any backdoors and there's no way to get in. It's always going to happen. And actually... Every, gosh, every 
the good guy is dependent on two, on backdoors too. Go process that one. That is societal effects. Well, one-on-one -on -one trust may be, sure, I can WhatsApp you or something, right? And we can make sure it's secure, but societies depend on a mutual trust, which is bigger than just me and you. And there, there is a need to, um, in a sense, understand what is going on, both at a bad level and a good level. And I don't think we have even the faintest idea how to deal with that. That is, we mandated the notion of absolute privacy, but we're really grateful that Paula had a backdoor. You know, so, right? Um, well, and then it comes down to who has the the finances. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask a question of, of you know, is this? I mean, I think everyone just agreed that that TLS is is a bit of a. Um, I don't have the right word for it. Um, it can use some improvement, <laughs> right? Um, is that a good segue to, to go to zero trust and like what the future trends look like? Well, so wait, there is no such thing as zero trust. That's all BS. I mean, yeah. there just isn't, right? It's all relative trust. And the user use case is absolute proof of that. I mean, it's relative trust. I'm connecting to a site. Your thing was, do you trust this is like 4chan or not? Yeah, it looks like 4chan, it smells like 4chan. Sure, it must be, right? Okay, go for it. So it's the deepest pockets or the uh, smartest researchers. Yeah. Uh, but the key is, is don't try to build back doors in because even without building back doors in, they're going to be back doors. And That's it's a right. matter of determination. <laughs> You're right. That's absolutely right. Rocky has nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being a bit more, um, but zero trust isn't a concept. I'm talking more specifically in, in things like how it's implemented in Istio with, with Spiffy and with um, mutual authentication, right? Assuming everything's compromised as the starting point. Oh, I see. I'm talking about a, a very technical implementation. Yes. That's the oh, yeah. Sure, that's a good thing. Yeah. If I may requalify uh, that a little bit. Um, for everyone's benefit, what zero trust is at the core is a notion that your network boundaries, security boundaries are um, irrelevant and that every service should uh, have strong authentication and authorization and, um, and validate uh, accesses all the way to like which device is connecting to the service and who does that device belong to and is yeah it and now you just said trust the device right so here is this fundamental duality built into chrome chrome insists on absolute security and then i get this thing which is every once in a while logs me out and by the way it knows my login and password and so just clicking on okay it logs me back in again what the hell? Seriously, are we just saying if you own the device, it's not zero trust? I think so. So, you know, this, again, I reject the notion that there is zero trust. It's all relative. There is an inherent duality, even in Chrome. 
I, I think the term zero trust is more of a marketing term to <laughs> type of technology. <laughs> yeah, I think concept, right? It's, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, right. And and I think they're really trying to to, to use that term to identify a new way of of performing authentication and authorization of services. Um, and and I I mean I, I agree with you at a philosophical level. <laughs> um, at a technical level, this is a very very well defined way to architect your um, your services, right? And to require yes, the the more technical we get, the better. Yeah, right. the more clear it gets. Yes, yes. Right. <laughs> Starting with the fact there's no there's no uh, usernames and passwords in zero trust. That is. I, I'm not sure that it's always true. So the different things I think that are being evaluated now, I don't know which ones are going to succeed, but the, the, the zero trust itself uh, is, is really the notion that when you are user A uh, connecting to service X, there is an authentication gateway in front of service X that will not only verify your credentials and your second factor, but also that your location is, is appropriate, your device is up to date and running the right security agent that you're obviously authorized to access the service, all of that stuff. And uh, it will perform all of these controls at the edge, right? Not all the way down the infrastructure, the, the network firewalls are not relevant in that process. Doesn't mean they're completely gone, but they're not relevant in that process. Um, what you're describing, I think, is probably more of an evolution of authentication, which is web awesome which is really when we are suggesting that instead of using username and passwords to authenticate users and identify them, we can use little security keys like this one. I don't know if it's going to focus. This is a Google Titan security key, right? You've seen the YubiKey ones as well. Uh, and this will perform, this has private keys in it and they will perform security handshakes when you log in. Uh, that are stronger than your username and password and are also tied to your identity. So instead of having to, because what we've done the last 10 years is, is absolutely terrible from a user convenience perspective is effectively to ask people to install third-party software, password managers, and have those password managers generate 64 character random characters as each password unique on every side they use. <laughs> yeah, always... but now we've gone back to physical keys. So my, my pockets are jammed with Yubi keys. It's like, duh. Well, I mean, you probably can use one or two. Uh, it's... And what if I don't have it on me and I really need to get into this service? This well, that's what you're talking about multiple inequities. You're really looking at multi-factor authentication. So like when, when we build services, right? There's never a password allowed on a service I've built. And, and that's for the last 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is done by keys. You know, keys can be um, secured with additional key phrases so they're more difficult to actually break into it. You know, that's usually first iteration of security. And then we move to certificates um, to secure all of that infrastructure. I mean, because if you're using usernames and passwords, you're just asking to be hacked. And when you really look at what we used to have with client certificate implementation, it's really similar to what we're doing now with YubiKeys because effectively you would bake that private key associated with a client certificate on one device, right? Yep, absolutely. And so that one device would be the one authorized to connect. And now instead of you know putting it on a device that's a laptop or a computer, we're putting it on a key. 
right? Yes. It's still public key authentication, um, except the the key itself is is more for transportable key, so easier and, and better to manage. It's also, um, I think we've made a lot of progress in the hardware too. It's very hard to tamper with a UB key or or a Google Titan key. Like they're very um, very well designed, very resistant to external attacks. Whereas your client certificate, the private key was on the disk, right? Any virus that got installed on your machine could steal that private key potentially if it wasn't done correctly. So it's an evolution, I think. Uh, now, I don't know if we're all gonna go to WebAuthn. I find it to be confusing. We've trained users to use MN passwords and it's gonna take a long time to, 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 to train them to something else. Like, I've tried with my wife. She's, she's not big on YubiKeys. <laughs> she's, no, she's fine with username and password. And it's going to take a very long time. Maybe we'll be able to train a generation of new internet users that are familiar with the, with the keys and, um, and, and, you know, don't want to use passwords at all. I don't know. Along those lines, I have a personal question. How hard is it to train someone to use a YubiKey uh, and... And a password manager instead of just uh, account name, password. Because uh, I'm thinking about this for someone whose memory and cognitive ability is fading. And so I'm trying to find something that works that they don't have to remember. It's just a physical process. Yeah, the, the password managers that are in the browsers today are, are excellent, I think. Um, the one in Firefox, the one in Chrome, they both, you know, have strong levels of encryption. They synchronize across devices. You, you log back into Chrome, you get all of your passwords back to your machine. Um, the, the, the issue is still that creating a new account um, and generating a random password for that account is still awkward in most sites. It's better now, actually. Uh, for the past couple of years, you, you can just do a right click uh, in a password field when you create an account and, and your browser will generate a, a random password for you. Um, ah. and, and I don't think you need uh, an external tool, right? I think your browser will, will do that well and will work across mobile and desktop. Uh, I'm using uh, 1Password just because I need access to those passwords too. So having the uh, vault uh, accessible to me too and I'm managing um, mine and his. On Unix, it's only browser. On non-Unix, it'll actually work on other applications besides, just not the ones that your medical providers do because they're behind the times. <laughs> well, the, the, the external password managers have features that the browsers will not have. So most of them will have the ability to share your passwords across your family, across your team, right? or store notes or documents, these sort of things, you, you, you will not find in a browser. But uh, if, if you're talking about convenience for a non-technical user who's just browsing the web, then I would suggest just use what your browser provides for you. And it is very hard to find. So I worked, when I was at Mozilla, I worked very, very closely with the, the storage infrastructure, the synchronization infrastructure for like passwords and, um, and bookmarks and history and all that stuff. And it's a very high level of security. Everything is encrypted client side. The server side doesn't see any data. Um, there are backups upon backups. Like it's, it's, it's well built. 
Um, I suspect Chrome has something similar and I suspect it's even better because every time I look at what Google is doing, it's they have more people, more money. Um, so you can trust them maybe even more than you could trust a smaller company trying to provide a password manager on their own. Except for I think the problem with Chrome is you go into manage my passwords and everything's in the blue. So anyone who has access to that desktop, if it's not secured and locked down. Exactly. Yeah, I, I will change that. I think if someone gains access to your laptop unlocked or your mobile device unlocked, it's game over anyway. No matter how much security you try to put in there, we have never as a security industry been able to secure an unlocked device. And even a locked device is difficult. We, uh, a few years ago, I was at a conference where a, a security researcher showed uh, how um, he could backdoor the BIOS of a brand new laptop in less than two minutes by removing the backplate and loading malware directly into uh, some memory section of the BIOS that the operating system would not even see. And his point was that you're crossing the customs at the airport to take your laptop away from you for three minutes, you get it back you have no idea what's running on it. And that's not even unlocking the laptop itself, right? And with an unlocked laptop, you can install all sorts of things that even if they don't have access to your files because your files are encrypted or your Chrome storage is encrypted, you can still have access to your live memory, your processes, all that stuff. There's, there's really no, no good way to secure anything at that point. Yeah, there's a good reason people have a separate machine to take into and out of China. That's and, true, yep. And the only hope we have with US customs is that Border Patrol doesn't have IT experts everywhere because Border Patrol folks aren't that bright. <laughs> so. <laughs> so seeing as we're jumping down the rabbit hole, did you see earlier this week there was an expert, and what's not even an expert, there's a hidden set of instructions on the Intel CPU which allow you to reflash your device. That's yeah, I a, saw that. You can actually get memory access too. It's basically a debug, pair of debug commands that let you go read any. Unbelievable. Any I mean, and, and it's crazy. If I was, I mean, this is going to be terrifying, terrifying for AWS. It's like, it's the worst it could ever be. I'll go find it. I'll put it onto the chat. Why do you think it's going to be bad for AWS? Well, you know, how do they detect whether a VM that's running in AWS contains this instruction? Sure, they can scan a VM before it launches, but you could manufacture it and jump to it at which point you rewrite the BIOS for the device. And then you have them, right? Not very nice. I mean, if, if it's exploitable from, a, from an instance. Um, it is. Perhaps. <laughs> it absolutely is. It's, I'll, I'll dig it out. Let me send you the, uh, the URL. I, I guess which the I'm question... sure you'll only visit with this browser. A question, I guess a question for AWS or any other cloud provider might be, uh, can this mitigate it through the hypervisor? Not as far as I've seen. And I mean, this, I spent 10 years doing this stuff, so 
No, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, Simon, you probably know better than me, but, um, but you can't, I guess I could see that you can't sort of check to make sure that the instructions being requested from the, from the um, child software or from the, the, the VM software isn't, the thing uh, is that contain those commands from what I've seen is if you execute these instructions in any ring, you get straight to ring zero. <laughs> so you get to override the hypervisor too. Oh, Let me, okay. here is, I, I haven't had time to go into it in depth, but I'll pop it in the chat right now. I, I, I would say that in my experience uh, working with AWS and AWS security or any really major cloud provider security teams and engineering teams, they're usually extremely good at their job. So I, something like this coming up means like in, uh, immediately their security folks like trying to understand within AWS like what is happening and how to mitigate it. And immediately they're gonna get to the engineers who manage the hypervisors. And I wouldn't be surprised if within hours, maybe days, they will have a fix for it. Um, AWS in particular has a deep understanding of the Zen hypervisor, which they use. Oh, sure, they do. Um, and indeed, they <clears throat> helped secure the bunch. Um, but uh, anyway, we'll see. That's the benefit of using a provider for, for, for a lot of these things is, is yeah, yeah, I agree. the cost of having each organization try to perform that level of operation security in their own environment is just incredibly high. Uh, incredibly high, and when you when you buy, you know, AWS, GCP, Azure, any other like managed infrastructure, you you also buy the security that comes with it. Yeah, that's right, and it's expensive. <laughs> well, it's expensive to do it yourself. I can tell you that too. <laughs> that too, yes. So, um, you know, all the Bromium stuff that we did, seventy-five patents worth, is in Windows. And um, it's also in Azure. So, you know, for sure, it's the right place for the tech to land. And they can invest the effort to make sure that it continues to be the right way to secure their platform. It's, it's, it's you know, I have no doubt that you're right. It's not the game for the third parties. I'm going to interrupt. I don't know where you want this to go, but if we're talking DevSecOps, do we want to move in a different direction here and talk about, I mean, it's much more likely you can introduce vulnerabilities in the application. I'd be happy to, to pivot there. I was, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, these are all fascinating topics to me. So, um, but I, and you know me, I love automation and thinking about how do we secure automation as part of a, the, the overall process. Um, and my thought on the comment on what we were just talking about is the vendors have done so little to try to address it. They actually, to me, the hardware vendors who would help solve some of these problems don't care about automation of their, of their systems. And they don't really do any work to make that easier. Um, and so the, when we, when we approach uh, automating infrastructure pieces, we find it, you know, the vendors have done so little to help us um, that it's that it's laughable. And so the security pieces become very, very hard to to put together as a as a as a solution in a generic way. Right. The 
the cloud providers do a great job of it in part because they own everything start top to bottom, right? They're even owning their own firmware at this point. So they've got, they've created a mono, a mono culture to a large extent that, that protects them. And I, the problem is I just don't think that that's the right solution for everybody. I don't think it's the right solution for the industry as a whole. If we're just blindly trusting Microsoft, AWS, Google, whoever the hyperscale providers are to do the right thing and do it well, at some point they, you know, they're going to figure they've got it licked, I guess, and not worry about it so hard, right? If they don't have the competition of, of an alternative. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's pretty steep competition in this space right now. There, there is. That's true. I, it's to me, this is the interesting dilemma on that. But, but uh, John, I would ha be happy to go in. You know, you were talking about DevSecOps from the application side. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of like down this line of PLS. Or I don't know that we, it wasn't clear that actually you wanted to go with this. Are we talking about? I, it? Yeah, my, I, I, had a, I had a chance to talk to Julian one on one. So this is, I was figured y'all would have questions for him and I, I've already gotten sort of my chance. So wherever, wherever people want to take it. So bring us up. No, I, 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 I was kind of hoping to be educated on this, not ah. dive into things. I mean, so when I look at these things, I think most of the app, most of the vulnerabilities are introduced during the coding stages and uh, throughout the deployment and the orchestration of, of the services wrapped around um, those applications. And so I was just kind of curious to hear um, you know, from his perspective, kind of what their best practices are for how they secure um, those components, you know, what the, the recommendations are, right? So, right, right. Um, spent a lot of time trying to shove as many security tools as I could in, in the CI CD pipeline. Um, and my success rate has historically been pretty low. Um, two reasons for that. The first one is a lot of security tools that exist out there are not well-funded and not designed to run in pipelines. And you end up with, like a lot of these tools are, are written by pen testers because they are in an engagement and they need to dig out something and then they put it on GitHub and it's cool and super useful. And then everybody tries to use it in a CI CD pipeline. It's not at all <laughs> what it was meant to do. And it spews out reports that are verbose and full of false positives and really, really hard to, um, to, 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 to you know, understand when in a CI CD pipeline, what you want is a highly deterministic process, right? If it blocks your pipeline, it needs to be for a clear reason with an actionable, uh, you know, fact coming out of it that developers can go through and fix before they rerun their pipeline within minutes. And, and you can't take like, for example, an application security scanner and, and, and shove it in the pipeline and expect it to just, you know, give you actionable results because those are exploration tools. They're verbose. They're going to give you a lot of, you know, clues, but not necessarily vulnerabilities. Some of them can be tamed into, you know, um, deterministic tools. Like we did that with Zap. Um, so Simon Bennett, who's the uh, creator of the OWASP, uh, Zattack proxy uh, and I worked together for seven, eight years, something like that at Mozilla. And we spent a lot of time turning Zap into a tool that could run into a CI/CD pipeline. Uh, if you Google uh, Zap 
baseline scan. We wrote a few blog posts about that. Uh, and you can turn Zap into a deterministic tool. But if you run Zap out of the box, it's going to give you something extremely verbose. Um, a lot of static analysis tools, a lot of uh, linting tools, uh, they, they all will do the same thing. They will give you a lot of interesting information, but very few like you know deterministic facts. So I think it's better for the most part to first reduce the scope of your tests. And we can do that by adopting you know, fairly secure development frameworks to begin with. So if, if you're trying to run an application security scan on a code base that's written in PHP with a custom in-house framework, and there's like 50,000 lines of it, um, it's probably not gonna work. Too broad, too messy, um, not gonna give you any good results and it's gonna take forever to run and upset your developers because they have to wait 15 minutes every time they try to push something. It's not going to work. If you have a greenfield project that's using something fairly clean, like a, a Python Django framework and some nice ORM and, and a fairly reasonable size application, uh, it's a good place to look for very specific tests that you want to put in place. Like, for example, you might want to do some very targeted static analysis with something like Python Bendit and put some rules in place for that application, work with your devs and decide, hey, you know, we never want to see this pattern in code. Um, we always want to use this function, not that function, et cetera, and codify that. And then you can run in your tests uh, in the CI-CD pipeline, the same way your unit tests will run. And then you can gradually increase the number of rules you have uh, uh, under that tool. And you know that every time you add a rule, uh, it is going to pass because you worked with the developers uh, on defining that rule. And you know that when it fails, it's actionable because it's a regression and your devs can actually fix it themselves. So that approach worked pretty well for us. We picked like very specific targeted security tools. Uh, we did that for things like um, dependency, like third-party dependencies. We spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to have like a risk score and, and use tools like snake.io and uh, NPM uh, audit tools and et cetera. It was really, really hard to get something deterministic in CI-CD pipeline. Um, but we, if we did it on greenfield projects and we had good agreements with the dev on what they were going to use and not use, then we could add those specific commands and, and this risk score and make sure that they would never import an insecure or vulnerable package. Um, so that's my, my advice really would be, in, from what I've learned, start small on a very small project with very specific tools and grow it over time. Right, and work with the devs um, along the way. And don't start with a big tool that you really want to automate um, because I don't think it gives a good, the right set of results. Sorry, it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, that's, no, it's a lot to think about. I mean, that, to me, does that improve? Actually, Rocky, go ahead. I was just gonna say, it would this. be good to have an uh, example of a couple of tools that worked well for you. Well, so Python Bendit, I like it if you're in the Python world. Uh, so static analysis for Python. There are a few other that are for other languages um, that, that work as well. I like in the Node.js world, what's the name of that? Uh, there's a Node security project, NSP, that got folded into NPM. I think it's NPM audit that you can run. 
that will audit all of mm. your third-party dependencies. Um, PIP, the Python uh, dependency manager, will do something similar. I think you can do PIP dash dash outdated, um, and it will tell you when your dependencies are out of date. Um, ideally, uh, instead of adopting third-party security tools, check uh, in the core language or the core packages for security functions, because it will be better maintained uh, over time, and they will already be part of the workflow of your developers. And that's pretty important because they need to be able to run what the security team is running uh, on their side as well. All right. Perfect. Good, good advice. It's actually actionable. Yeah. Does that, I mean, there's, there's so many layers here because there's a part of it where it's, you know, just making sure your app is protected. And there are common behaviors that you can, you can filter from an app check perspective. Um, and then there's depend, you know, are you bringing in a dependency you didn't even know had security vulnerabilities? Hopefully you're right. The tool, ideally your package, the, the dependency graph of whatever platform you're using should, should keep that up to an extent. Um, dependencies are messy. Yeah. It's, it's such a messy world. I think in my opinion, um, you really have two options in the dependency world is option A, um, implement super tight control around which dependencies are allowed by uh, whitelisting specific frameworks, right? And, uh, and vendor those into your code so you don't depend on the external uh, package managers directly. But you kind of need to have like a, a committee of like senior engineers who will uh, agree that yes, React is a framework that we want to allow internally but not that other random framework over there. And then like every version of React is kind of trusted, but you, you do need to have that. That's option A. Option B is a lot simpler. And that's what most people do is just write it off and hope for the best. Right? <laughs> and, and use a, 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 a chaos wrangling tool like uh, a snake.io, for example, to go scan whatever is loaded in your application for something that is known bad. Right, with the success rate that you know a tool like that can realistically have, which is low, because it needs to look for known bad behavior, and and if you have a targeted attack, you're screwed. But it's yeah. better for your devs because they can use whatever they want. Right, so it's really one is high cost, high security. The other one is low cost, low security. Yeah, it's like two thoughts. I mean, I, I was looking at a startup. Um, one guy wanted me to invest in um, called CodeSense, and I ran it against some of my Go code, um, which was not a big application. And it's interesting to see as it went through all the dependencies into my code and this this kind of heat graph was this little speck in the middle of all the stuff that got imported, right? And, and I had no clue the level and depth of all the stuff that was actually getting imported into it. And at first I was kind of offended because I'm kind of going, I don't want to look at all this crap. And then I'm kind of going like, oh, you know, they're calculating technical debt right down through all these applications they can scan on GitHub. And some of it wasn't very good. And some of it was core Google code, right? Where, where I'm looking at these things kind of going like, ah, okay, well, maybe I do care about that. Um, so I, think, I don't think it's clear to developers. It wasn't as clear to me the depth of which libraries are getting wrapped inside of libraries, inside of libraries. And, and you know, we're importing a boatload of code into dependencies. 
uh, that just kind of struck me as, you know, it was it, visualizing that was an interesting experience. Well, I think it's important to recognize the immense benefits we've got from, you know, the dependency management world. Like you can spin up a decently, you know, fleshed out, full interactive with checkout uh, functionalities and everything like Node.js application in a day, right? Using external dependencies. The, your dependency tree is gonna make you die a little inside, um, but but you can. Uh, what's interesting to me, so I my, my main language is also Go, and yeah. Go has an interesting property that it has uh, a, an incredibly good standard library. And you can write very complex applications without stepping into the dependency world at all, just by using the standard library. And what I've found reviewing packages before I decided to use them is that sometimes, oftentimes, a developer will use an external package just because they need one function. And that package would import another package and another package, et cetera. And you compound that by the size of an application, you end up with a massive dependency tree when in fact they really wanted a few functions here and there. And it's, it's sometimes better for security and also from a software durability perspective to copy that code into your application instead of depending on a third party package. Um, so there's always this um, balance that really software engineers need to uh, figure out between duplicating code and you know giving up on some, somebody else maintaining it for them or trusting the dependency tree. And there's no good answer, right? It entirely depends what you're doing. Like I've written code that I didn't care at all for. It was a simple API and I would happily use all dependencies in the world. And I've written code that you know issued cryptographic signatures for releases of Firefox. Two completely different threat models, right? And and the choices between these two applications were drastically different because of the risks. Yeah, the only thing that comes to mind is like, you know, they, they GitHub introduced the Dependabot or Dependabots, whatever those words are. And, you know, here's the security fixes that go into it. What, what, I, I like stopped listening to it because every time I do one, it breaks my code. <laughs> <laughs> they, they test for upgrade this package. They don't test for will it break your code. <laughs> the hidden cost of, of dependencies. <laughs> yes. Ah, oh, yes, you're right. Oh, you muted it, Rob. Thank you. Yeah, we're out of, we're, we're at the top of the hour, so we're out of time. And security, security is always uh, an unlimited topic, unfortunately. And then one people never have time for, so. I'm glad, I'm glad I'm glad we made time Julian thank you for joining us you're welcome to come back anytime we're, we'd love absolutely this is the type of conversation we have sort of talk about topics of the day things that are on our mind and sometimes try and solve world peace too depends on the day <laughs> and having pointers uh, to you know where to get started and whatnot that actually makes life a lot easier when you're trying to convince folks they need to be better at it uh, because if all you do is say general things, they, they won't listen to you. But if you say, take a look at, they do sometimes, especially for female. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. This security session was fantastic. I know people want to have more security topics. So if this is of interest to you, please come in. Uh, if this is your expertise, uh, we would love to have more Dave discussions and talk about automation and infrastructure and security all together as a, as a topic. So we're looking forward to hearing more security in the future. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.